What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm gonna do about 20 to 30 minutes. I'm gonna try and do these at least once a week on top of having a guest episode or doing a solo episode um, and keep them on the shorter side and just hit record and let it flow, you know what I mean? First question, I won't read names here. Thoughts on ketos for short spurts to regulate hormones. I have PCOS and I struggle with weight. Um, So this is predicated on an assumption that doing keto regulates hormones, which I think is uh, not a thing. Um, And so if that is your purpose for doing keto for short spurts, because you feel like it's going to have some regulatory effect on some hormones, I don't know which tree you're barking up there. I don't really know what you would be assuming is happening. So it's tough for me to say whether or not that's not true, but I'm trying to grasp at some straws here and think where you might be thinking. Um, And I I really can't come up with anything. So I I don't don't think keto for short spurts for for any reason is a great plan. Now, Now, if we add in that piece of context of PCOS, I think there is something here where people have PCOS, they tend to have some element of insulin resistance and, and we have research where people who have PCOS do great on high carb calorie deficits and they lose weight and, and see markers of uh, health improve. But I think there's something where if I was working with a client who had PCOS and we are trying a more balanced approach where we're not really focused on carb to fat ratios and things aren't working or calories need to go really low or adherence is low or biofeedback's not good, I might say, oh, you know, pushing a lower carb approach would be on my list of things to try. Um, and so if you have PCOS, you're struggling with weight loss, you've tried a lot of things, you've tried a more balanced approach, and it's just not working for you, then I think looking at, hey, could I pay attention to my carbohydrate intake and maybe lower that? Is that something I could do? I think that that's totally valid. I don't think that it would have much to do with the regulation of hormones and more to do with just an underlying low level of insulin resistance that um, people who have PCOS sometimes slash tend to have. Um, yeah, so less about regulating hormones, more about, hey, people have PCOS. If you've tried every, you know, quote unquote, tried everything and it's not working, I think looking at yeah, maybe reducing carbohydrate intake is something I would would be on the list of things to try for sure. Next question. I've heard that too much cardio makes you gain slash hold on to weight. Is that true? That's not true. Um, that's not true. Uh, I'm trying to guess if somebody's saying this, they probably, what they really mean is one of two things. There's this like, cortisol fear-mongering that I've been seeing of like, oh, you do too much cardio and you have like this like chronic high-level cortisol. Like, uh, yeah, that that won't even lead to weight gain, frankly. That might lead to some fat redistribution, um, but but not weight gain. You're not, there's no such thing as I'm doing so much cardio that I'm gaining weight or I'm doing so much cardio, now I'm struggling to lose weight. From a physiological perspective, there's nothing here at all. Um, nobody is ever gaining slash holding onto weight because they're doing too much cardio. Um, there is something to that cortisol side of things, but it doesn't really have to do with weight loss. It has to do with just like biofeedback and how you feel on the day to day. Like it's possible you're doing so much cardio that you're always under a lot of stress and that you don't feel good or you don't sleep well. And yeah, that's not going to stop you from losing weight. And it's not going to cause you to gain weight, but it might make you not feel very good. And that's not even a cardio thing. That's you systemically overreaching, which just is a term for doing more than you can recover from on a regular basis. And that could be lifting, that could be running, that could be CrossFit, that could be just any stressors on the body. It could be orange theory, it could be any sort of exercise that you're doing. And the second thing is, um, 
Yeah, I'm reaching here and I'm trying to make something out of nothing here because I think that this question just is not true. Um, but if you do so much cardio that you get super hungry and then you that hunger in turn makes you eat more such that it's becoming difficult to lose weight because you're so hungry all the time from all the cardio, I think that can be a thing where people are you know, doing 20 plus thousand steps a day and they're like, why am I not losing weight? It's like, well, maybe you're doing so much cardio and particularly high intensity cardio that you're so fucking hungry all the time that you are now overeating the calories you're burning from the exercise. So I certainly think that's a thing. What we tend to see with exercise is that we have this like upside down U-shaped curve. If you guys can imagine an upside down U-shape, where on the left of that upside down U, whatever, uh, if you don't do a lot of exercise, doing more exercise, so going from sedentary to mildly active, we see uh, appetite suppression. We see that that actually has an appetite suppressing effect. Um, you know, hunger and satiety signals tend to be more, uh, tend to uh, align better when you go from sedentary to mildly active. But when people go from mildly active to highly active, we don't see that an increase in appetite suppression. And in some cases we see a reduction in appetite suppression or an increase in appetite. And so if I have someone who's, you know, getting 4,000, 5,000 steps a day and we can get them up to eight to 12,000 steps per day, I suspect that not only will they burn more calories doing that, but they'll also find some sort of hunger regulation effect. If I have somebody getting 12, 10, 12,000 steps already and they're like, hey, should I get... Uh, if I go up to 15 to 20,000, will I see even more appetite suppression? You won't. I mean, you'll burn more calories, but you might also get more hungry, which if you give into that hunger and eat more, yeah, we might be kind of at a net neutral situation. But again, I'm reaching. I don't think this idea of like, oh, I do so much cardio, it's making me gain weight. That's not true. I'm doing so much cardio, it's making me hold on to weight. That's not true. Next question, cables versus free weights. Also with cable machine switch from home to gym program. Um, okay, so I'm guessing that, that second question is if you're in my home program, which does not assume that you have cables and you get cables, should you go to the gym program? I'll answer that one first. You should not go to the gym program. In my home program, we use barbells, dumbbells, adjustable bench, bands. Um, anything else that we that is mandatory? Those are the only mandatory things. But if you're in my home program and you have those, everything I just listed, and you have cables in the program, Every single time I think you can use cables, I will list it in there. And so, you know, if we're doing a chest supported dumbbell row, I will put in the exercise notes, hey, if you have cables, you can swap for pop, pop, pop. You know, if we're doing skull crushers, I might say, hey, if you have cables, you can do a single arm tricep extension with your cables. And so if you're in the home program and you get cables, stay in the home program, but, but keep an eye out for those notes. For the gym program, you really need a leg press uh, and or hack squat, uh, Leg press is definitely the big one, but also just assorted machines tend to be really helpful for the gym program, but you could try it. You need a leg extension and a ham curl. That's another one. So I really wouldn't go into the gym program without a leg, a leg press. Listen, if you had cables, leg press, leg extension, ham curl, then okay, sure, go to the to the gym program. And, and when it comes to cables versus free, free weights, one is not inherently better than the other, um, you know, dumbbells, are nice because they allow for free moving, free movement, right? Unlike a barbell or a machine where you're kind of on a fixed path. Um, cables do that as well. 
Um, in many cases, I'd say cables are more customizable in terms of arm path. And so if you want to do a skull crusher, there's only so many places you can put your elbow and align things up with the cables because you can move the cables up and down. Um, you don't always have to, you're not beholden to fighting gravity in the pressing upward direction. Um, and so I think cables are more versatile. Um, free weights are great. I don't, I, I don't want to be like, oh, cables are better than dumbbells. But if I had to lean one way, I would get, if you're like, hey, I have 2,000 or I have a thousand bucks or something, whatever. I can only get one piece of equipment. Should I get dumbbells or cables? Um, I guess the answer to that would be if you want to grow your upper body, I'd get cables, lower body. I think dumbbells and free weights can be better. It's hard to necessarily perfectly mimic all RDL and split squad variations with cables, but you absolutely could. Um, and so honestly, I think it's a moot point. I don't think that one is inherently better than the other. I think each has, uh, their own advantages. Um, cables, I might lean towards cables being at least something I think are underrated that people still aren't using them enough that there's still this like inherent feel of like I gotta gotta lift the heavy iron bro gotta lift like they just gotta pump those free weights it's like well that 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 doesn't make any sense like cables are amazing uh cut more customizable arm path more customizable customizable line of force you don't always have to be fighting gravity insofar as you're pushing upward against gravity um which makes them really really great um I'd say cables are also just a smidge smidge more joint friendly um, insofar as they're just a little bit easier in the length and position sometimes, um, which some people are like, oh, it's bad for hypertrophy. I think it, it becomes not a big deal, frankly. There's still plenty of tension when you're in that stretch position. Um, but as you pull the cable out, it tends to, to increase in tension just a little bit. But maybe a conversation for another day. Next question. If in a calorie deficit, weight goes down, does it override metabolic adaptation and weight continues to go down or need to adjust? Um, if you're in a calorie deficit and weight goes down, you will metabolically adapt to those calories over time. The biggest, <laughs> this cracks me up, man. The biggest adaptation that happens when you go into a deficit, the biggest thing that reduces your metabolism when you go into a deficit is you lose weight. And so, yeah, if you're in a calorie deficit and you lose weight, you will adapt to those new calories. Guess what? By losing weight. That is the primary adaptation that happens to a deficit. The thing that reduces your metabolism the most when you go into a deficit is you lose weight. And so, yeah, you, you will, depending on the size of your deficit, remember, listen, if, you, if I'm, my maintenance is 3,000 and I go into a 2,000 calorie deficit, I will lose a lot more weight and that will be a deficit for a lot longer and I will have to make less adjustments than if I start at 2,800 and then 2,600 and then 2,400 and 2,200 and then I get to 2,000. And so if you make a, if you are in a larger deficit, you, that will remain a deficit for longer. Of course, duh. I mean, you'll lose more weight and you won't have to make it as many adjustments. Um, you know, if you start off trying to be in a 100 calorie deficit, you're going to have to make more adjustments because it will more, you will more quickly adapt because it's a smaller deficit, that's all. Um, and what I just said has nothing to do with which of those two is a more successful strategy. The person who makes a big jump will lose a lot of weight, make less adjustments, but obviously right out of the gate, they're in a large deficit, so they might not feel so good. The person who's making less adjustments because they're incrementally in smaller deficits, they're like, oh, I'm in a 200 calorie deficit. And once I adapt, I'll make another 200 calorie deficit. And then once I adapt, I'll go 200 calories lower. Like that's not inherently a better strategy. Um, and I think there's pros and cons on both sides of those equations. So your need to adjust will phys physiologically speaking come down to the size of the deficit you choose. If you, It will also come down to genetically 
um, how quickly your metabolism adapts. Now, when I say adapts, I mean the things other than weight loss. So some people will find that, again, outside of weight loss, which is the biggest adaptation, their reduction, their body reduces neat more quickly, um, and, and they find that they end up having to make more adjustments because their metabolism adapts more quickly. But at the end of the day, you know, the amount of adjustments and the frequency and how quickly you'll need to make them has to do with the size of the deficit. If you're in a large deficit, you're gonna make less adjustments because that's going to be a deficit for longer um, and vice versa. Cool. Is bioengineered food really safe to consume? Um, that's a great question. I would, I would want to tackle this more on a food item by food item basis. And I, I will say it, I would not be able to give you a super thorough discussion of multiple actual food items. I, I'm leaning towards yes, um, but I also don't think we're ready to make it, uh, we're ready to introduce this on a large scale into the food system. And I think whether or not that's the best play in terms of environmentally, uh, the best play is a question that is both fascinating and a smidge out of my scope, but definitely something that's interesting. It's like, you know, is this the answer to our environment environmental issue from a from a, a farming perspective? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. Some people would say yes. Uh, I, it's not an area that I feel comfortable enough to speak on um, in depth. Next question. When it comes to your program, I'm looking for four days a week, less than 45 minutes, but because I'm slow. For me, that is more like 60 minutes, like four exercises. Is this a good fit? Absolutely, yes. Oh my God, yes. We do right now four or five exercises per day and 60 minutes is the sweet spot. That's where we're headed. I mean, if you if you do the program mathematically as I have it written out with the exact rest periods, it's under 60 minutes. For some people who like to rest a little bit longer, who, who dilly-dally, and I mean that in a, in a uh, an endearing way, like they just talk to their friends or they spend a little bit more time at the gym. It could be up to 75 minutes. Um, you know, if you're really, really strong and you happen to be loading up more plates and you need a little bit more from a warm-up perspective, you do, you know, four or five warm-ups for your RDL because you're doing 300, 300 pounds or you're doing one or two warm-ups for your RDL because you're doing 75 pounds. Um, for stronger people, I bet that just based on the fact that you have to load up more plates and potentially do more warm-ups, um, it might take a smidge longer, but dude, we're right on that 60 minute sweet spot. Absolutely sounds like a great fit. Uh, next question. If you do the exact same program, sets, weight, reps, executed in four days versus five days, is there any difference? So there could be a difference. There could be a difference if you take your five day program and let's say there's seven exercises per day, right? Let's say. Um, and that's 35 exercises per week. Let's say on average, that's uh, there's three sets per exercise. It's 105 set working sets per week, let's say. And for you, that works, right? I think that's a fuck ton, but whatever. You're doing five days a week, uh, what I say? Seven exercises, 35 exercises, three sets each, 105 sets per week. If you now do that in four days, that's, you know, 21, 21.25 uh, 20.25, 21.25, 21.25 working sets per workout. Now for me, that's crazy high. So for me, that would now take each workout and it would, for me, it would bleed into some junk volume in that session. Um, and past the point for me, after doing like about 12 working sets, I find that my ability to produce good effort goes down dramatically. And so for me, that per session volume is in that 12 sets per workout range. If I go above that, I, I start to feel my, my actual um, effort and productivity go down. 
Um, and so it matters the total volume you're doing and it matters for which exercises you're doing and how close you're training to failure and your personal preference and your time constraints. I will say that within reason, right? If you were doing, let's say you were doing 10 working sets per workout across five workouts, that's 50 working sets per workout uh, per, per week, 50 working sets. Could you do 50 working sets in four workouts and get very similar results? Absolutely, yes. I think within reason, outside of like really pushing the boundaries of the most volume that you could recover from, I think it's gonna be just fine. I think within reasonable programming, this will be totally fine. Going from five to four or four to three, chances are it won't make a huge difference. But I would, uh, so basically recently, I've gone from four days a week to three days a week training. And I took the same volume. I took all the sets I was doing in four days and now I'm doing them in three days. So I've done this exact thing where it's like I was doing more days, now I'm doing less days, but I'm doing the same volume. What have I experienced in terms of results? The same because I wasn't doing that much volume to begin with. So mashing it into three days wasn't a big ask. I was doing about eight working sets per workout across four workouts. So that's 32 working sets per week. And now I'm doing that across three workouts. So it's like 10 to 12 working sets per workout, which is still within what I can do well. And so, yeah, I've actually seen, frankly, better results. Uh, just, yeah, that's so fucking hard to say. Like, oh, I changed this one tiny thing. I've gotten better results. I have enjoyed that more, let's say. I've enjoyed having that extra free day. And I know that my workouts now take me an extra 10 to 15 minutes because I have another three to five, three to four working sets. It probably takes me another 15, 20 minutes. But that trade-off of, you know, 15 extra minutes on each workout, but I have an extra day free has been nice for me. And I, I can't say that that's always gonna work out, but I'd say most of the time it works okay. It works okay enough for you to try and see how it goes, definitely. How long have we been going here? 17 minutes. Uh, next question, critical notes to mastering the back squat technique and eliminating butt wink. Um, most important thing to know when trying to master the back squat is that your back squat won't look like everyone else's and that there is no objective optimal back squat technique. There are only relative best practices within what you can do based on your mobility, your limb length, your anthropometry, what feels comfortable for you. And so the back squat's an interesting one because of all of the moving parts in the back squat, because we have triple extension where, you know, knee, ankle, hips, all flexing, extending. That brings in a lot of differences between humans and how we are gonna look when we squat. And so the most important thing you can do is get this idea that there's an objectively right way to squat out of your head. There is no such thing. There are parameters if you're a body, if you're a power lifter or something, sure, you have to meet certain parameters. But even if you go to a powerlifting meet where you're like, well, Powerlifters have the same goal and they have the same parameters. They must all squat the same. They sure as heck don't. They sure as heck don't. Some people squat. If you go look at Lane Norton, Lane has a, a very, Lane's squat looks like a good morning almost, right? I mean, he has a very hip dominant technique, a very wide stance. Um, and then go look at a Chinese weightlifter, a Chinese Olympic weightlifter. They are completely upright, knees over toes. They have like no ankle cartilage. You know, it's just like crazy technique, very upright, very knee dominant. Um, and, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm belaboring this point because this is where people go wrong. They're, most people need to figure out what is based on my preferred technique. And, and you won't necessarily know, and I'll go through some thoughts here in a second, but is get rid of this idea that there's a right way to squat. Um, there are parameters, you know, ballpark kind of barriers up of like, yeah, maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe this is more of a good idea, but you know, I, the people ask this question nine times out of 10, their squat is closer to great than they think. And 
They just don't like the way it looks. So if you happen to have long femurs, right, the bone that goes from your hip to your knee, if you have long femurs um, in relation to your tibia, from the bone from your knee to your ankle, let's say, um, then you will have a hingier squat. Your butt will have to go back, right? The femur is, <laughs> your femur is long, and so that's going to push your hips back, right? We can talk about femur to torso length, uh, ratios. We could talk about femur to tibia length ratios. Um, it also matters the shape of your the head of your femur. I don't, I'm getting into like some nerdy shit, but I want you to know that there's like all of these things to consider. the The way that your femur, the head of your femur, goes into your hip socket, the way those two things fit together, will decide um, how wide your feet should be, how externally rotated your feet should be, and finding out where that is. A lot of people, they're like, man, I can't squat to depth. I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel great. I can't get my femur parallel at the bottom. And a, a lot of times these people have too narrow of a stance and not enough external rotation in the feet. Their feet are pointed straight forward. And for some people, what happens is as you go down into hip flexion, your, uh, the head of your femur kind of knocks into the, um, uh, where it goes into your pelvis and your hip socket, um, and they kind of knock into each other and create some of that kind of pain or impingement or just kind of a, hey, I can't go any lower feeling. But all of a sudden you take this person, you widen up their stance a little bit, you externally rotate their feet, and what's happened is, whatever, I, I know a, a lot about this from, from what I do, but also from my wife who has had bilateral, bilateral labral tear surgery on her hips, so a lot of learning about um, head of femur, hip socket, all this stuff, um, kind of looking at different amounts of bone growth on the, the head of the femur. Um, and so what I want people in this situation to do is get rid of this idea that there's an objectively right way to squat, and I, and I want you to play with different amounts of foot stance width. So maybe a wider stance, maybe a more narrow stance. And I want you to play with uh, uh, your toe angle. So are your toes straight forward? Do you feel best there? Or do you externally rotate, rotate them and do you feel better? Where do you where are you able to get the most depth? Where are you able to get the most depth without a butt wink? We'll talk about butt wink in a second. Um, I want you to do that and I want you to get a pair of wedges. Most people are like, obsessed with working on ankle mobility, fuck that. You don't need to train to have crazy ankle mobility. Just get a pair of wedges. Stand on a pair of wedges, get a pair of squat shoes that have a heel elevation, and bam, all of a sudden your squat is better. Um, what we wanna do is we wanna find that stance width and toe angle or foot angle that is right for you. We wanna get you on a pair of wedges, and I bet you your squat is a million times better. If you do that with an open mind, thinking about what feels best for you, I guarantee you your squat improves. Now, the butt wink uh, is and is something that we can do something about. Normally, finding the technique that I just spent the last 10 minutes talking about that's right for you will improve and lessen the likelihood that you have a butt wink. But there is an element of you've run out of hip flexion and now you are going to you know uh, flex at the spine to compensate to go lower. And most of me thinks that this isn't such a problem. I mean, if you're if you're a high level power lifter and, and you no matter what, when you get to depth, you have a big butt wink and you're gonna compete in powerlifting for the next 20 years, maybe it amounts to something where it's a problem, but um, I'm both not so worried about a butt wink uh, for the average lifter if it's, if it's moderate, um, but I'm also thinking that a lot of people, once they find this really comfortable stance, like you just stop before that happens. Like, it goes back to this obsession with there's uh, there has to be some objectively right way to squat. Is that there's like an objective depth you must hit? Unless you're a power lifter, that's not true. You should find the stance width and toe angle and technique in terms of 
hip dominant, quad dominant, bar placement. You should find all of that that is right for you, that allows you to get as deep as you can prior to butt lifting with the most comfort in your joints and lets you work hard. And you should do that without worrying so much about, oh, I have a little butt wink. If you have a little butt wink, either work on your technique and that might clean that up or stop before that happens. Um, unless you're a power lifter, there's no objective depth that you need to hit. Next question. How do you manage call a, a non-compliant client when you've tried just about everything? Um, you know, th there's the, the classic answer of like, you know, you, you aren't gonna be able to help everyone. And at some point, this isn't a good fit. This person's clearly not ready to actually do the things that they probably said that they were ready to do. Um, but I was having this, I was having this conversation with, um, an, uh, 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 I was gonna say a client. I don't like saying that a coach who's in our mentorship, um, yesterday, we were talking about this sort of scenario, not exactly the same scenario, but I think my go-to in terms of communicative style is, is, uh, honesty. I know that sounds cliche, but if I have a client and I'm thinking of one, uh, who's, you know, upon generating the plan, let's say in the first couple calls, we come up with the plan. Hey, we're gonna do this. We're gonna track calories, protein. We're gonna take averages. Um, you know, we're not gonna stress when we go out. We're gonna not track on those, whatever the strategy is. And then a month goes by and we're not doing what we said we would do. There's, a, there's for me, a combination of, I just wanna be honest with that person. I wanna say, hey, let's be real. Let's not mess around here. You're not doing what we set out to do. So that's 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 a, a fault in two ways. That's either we asked too much of you and we need to lower the bar. And so I'll come at this with curiosity of like, hey, like what's stopping you from doing what we set out to do? Is it because we set a, a goal that you were, you know, in hindsight was probably a bit ambitious that maybe like given your lifestyle, it wasn't realistic for us to track everything on a food scale, for example. Or, um, you know, are there things coming up that we need to strategize around better? Do you need skills and education to help do this a little bit better? Are there tips and tricks in terms of tracking and um, pre-logging or, you know, um, um, you know, not being familiar with how to use a food scale? Like, is it a you thing in terms of like, we need to help you have the tools and skills to accomplish this? Or is this a goals are too ambitious? Did we set the bar too high? And so come at this from curiosity, say, hey, why aren't we doing the things that we set out to do? I wanna hear from you. Why do you think that is? You know, and some people are gonna give you the, well, I just gotta do it. I just gotta, I just gotta do it. I just gotta suck it up and do it. And it's like, yeah, maybe. But as the coach, I've seen, you know, uh, many, many times where it's like, I know after the, this month right now that we've set you up for failure because we've given you too much to do and you're not, you're not either ever gonna be ready for this because of your lifestyle or you're not ready for this yet given where you are. Like, um, and sometimes I'll let the client play the, well, I just got to do it card. And I'm like, okay, you just got to do it. Is there anything I can do to help? Is there any tools I can give you? How about this? Maybe I'll try and, you know, I'll try and spot somewhere where I can make it a bit easier for them. It's like, hey, maybe we run through a mock perfect day of eating and, and we don't follow that like some super strict meal plan, but we use it as a guideline, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I'll give them the chance to go through with their feeling of like, well, I just got to do it. It's on me. I got to do it. It's okay. All right, fine. I'll see if I can give you some help, but we'll. Let the ball go back in your court, how this goes. And after a while, if that works, then fantastic. Then maybe it was a little bit of, of grit, you know, sort of like discipline, you know. Um, but it often isn't. And the, the plan often does need iterating and adjusting and maybe going back and meeting somebody where they're at. Um, and so I would keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, man, you, you know, you can't help everyone. So there's certainly an element of like, you've done what you can do. And I would always look inward at yourself and say, have I done 
the best I can do. And if you have done that, then great. I mean, that that is literally your job and that's it. You can only take it so far. Cool. I don't know if this is a recording's gonna stop the 30 minute mark. Uh, it's been a while since I recorded a podcast in 4K. Okay, we'll see. If it does, sorry. Next question. Are deadlifts more back or glutes or both? Um, I'd say deadlifts are more of a lower body exercise, glutes, hams, quads. It's going to be a mix of all three of them, which is the point. I mean, the point of the deadlift is often to lift the most weight and to lift the most weight, we get into a technique that allows us to use all of the leg muscles in our lower body, barring, bearing the, uh, the calves very much. Um, and so the glute, the deadlift will always be more of a lower body exercise than a back exercise. The back muscles are, are not going through a big, concentric eccentric the back muscles are working isometrically which is still like they're going to get a, a decent stimulus doing that um so it's always going to be a more of a lower body than a back exercise however um that's also the downside of doing deadlifts like if you're looking to to hypertrophy any of those leg muscles you, you probably don't want to work them all at the same time with the as heavy a weight as possible putting as much load through the spine as possible um doesn't mean they're bad for hypertrophy just that's the downside compared to things like rdls or hack squats um, deadlifts more back or glutes or both. Yeah, it's going to be more lower body. You, you said glutes and uh, it's definitely glutes, um, but it's definitely hams and it's also quads and it also depends on your technique. Um, you know, depends on what your technique looks like. Are you doing a, you know, kind of like a Steffi Cohen sumo deadlift where you're basically squatting the weight? I mean, then it's probably going to be a lot of glutes and quads and yeah, a little less upper back, a little bit more lower back. Um, and so it depends on your technique. If you're looking to grow your back, don't do deadlifts. If you're looking to grow your glutes, I'm not saying don't do deadlifts, or, but it, it wouldn't be in my top 10 glute exercises. So um, if you want some back growth and some glute growth, but you really just want to get stronger at deadlifting, then you should deadlift, absolutely. Cool. Next question. Do forearms forearms have much room for growth? I hear they're like calves, tough to grow in size. Um, they are like calves. They are tough to grow in size. Um, but they absolutely have room for growth. They absolutely, absolutely have room for growth. And if you want to grow them, I would like if you, for most people, they're, they're different in calves in so far as if you do like leg presses and RDLs and stuff, you, you don't really get a lot of calf stimulus. Forearms are interesting because if you do a lot of pulling movements, you get a forearm stimulus. You do a lot of bicep curls, you get a forearm stimulus. If you do ham curls, you get a little bit ca- a little cam- uh, calf stimulus. To be fair, that's true. Um, but I find that most people don't need to train their forearms directly to get them to grow to a point that they're happy with. But if you are someone who's like, man, I'm I want big forearms, you should train them directly with the wrist curls, and and you'll see growth absolutely. Next question: How important is bar path as a sign of good form? Can you use it for all body biomechanics? Bar path tends to be something we talk about when we're using a bar, like barbells. Um, and I would say how important is bar path as a sign of good form? I think it goes back to this idea that there is not some universal good form. I would say that if you're doing a deadlift or a squat, that any horizontal translation of the bar could be seen as an energy leak, like, um, that there's a room for improved efficiency. Um, but I will level with you. If, if there was a powerlifting coach next to me who said, yeah, that's, that's true in theory, Um, but there's occasionally room for that horizontal translation if that allows for a modification of the technique throughout the exercise to actually 
lift more weight. I would be not surprised if that was the case sometimes. Um, so what I was taught back in the day that you want a vertical vertical bar path for things like deadlifts and squats because that is directly opposing the line of force. You're pushing right up against gravity. You, you know, time spent putting force horizontally into the bar in some way is energy leaked. Um, you know, when we look at something like a, a, a bench press, that, that kind of goes out the window a little bit because the bar path tends to be a bit angled. You're not, you're not pressing directly up and down. Um, you're pressing more up and back on an angle and you're bringing the bar down and forward onto your chest. And so it it depends. You know, if you're talking about bar path in general as something to look for, I think that that's fine to do. Um, but in a powerlifting context, I would be surprised if there wasn't a little wiggle room. Next, best approach for eating out during maintenance. Yeah. You just enjoy yourself. I don't, I don't really have... Um, like this question to me is is an issue. It's an issue that this best best approach to eating out during maintenance is doing what you want to do. I, it's going to sound cliche. This is not like a. I could have went the route with this question of like get a protein and a plant on your plate and eat on one plate. And and fine, fine. Those are fine principles to have. Insofar as you're like, hey, when I eat protein and plants, that's good for my my gut health and my muscle building and my satiety. And and yeah, that's awesome. You can do that. But eating out during maintenance isn't always about getting a meal that's like the most fuel uh, oriented where it's like, oh, I've got to have protein and plant on the plate. Sometimes you eat out and you're like, I want to have something yummy that tastes delicious. And so my advice for eating out during maintenance is assessing what's important to you in that moment, which can change based on the circumstance. You might be going to a restaurant you really love and, and guess what? It's not a high protein, high fiber environment. Um, you know, you're going to eat your favorite pizza place or something like in that moment, I think having some pizza is probably a good idea. Um, if you're going to a, a restaurant where you're like, nah, I don't really care too much for the food and you know, uh, this is gonna be a time where I'm gonna opt for food that I think serves my goals a bit more instead of something that you know is tastes pretty yummy, but you know, it doesn't really fit fueling me, uh, filling me up, you know, helping me build muscle, helping my gut health, any of that stuff. Um, so it, it changes every single time. You know, you're always making choices based on What's going to make, what, what feels right now? What's going to make me feel good right now? And feel good might mean eating something yummy in a circumstance where that's worth it to you. And it might, in other circumstances, be, hey, I'm going to get a, a, a Greek salad with double double chicken or chicken and shrimp. And this is a moment where I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to go for the, uh, you know, the, 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 the gyro or what, the, whatever other, I mean, Greek food, you could, it's pretty easy to get kind of the best of both worlds here, but um but this question of like best approach to eat out during maintenance implies to me that you have some relationship with food work to do where like um, it, it is still, you're still in need of working on this idea of finding that balance of food that's gonna make me feel good, but also knowing that there's time for the occasional indulgence. And you know, what I want for my clients is to be making those decisions um, with a great sense of autonomy. That's really what I want for my clients, not to go hard tangent on this, but what I really want for my clients when they go out to eat is to do something they won't regret. And, and, and that doesn't always work sometimes, you know, things don't play out, but I want you to think about that regret. And and sometimes you go out to the pizza place and you're, you get a salad and you're like, well, you know, if I had had a slice of pizza or two, 
you know, I would have felt really good. And now I'm thinking about this a lot. And now I'm feeling guilty that I didn't have pizza with my family. And I'm, I'm thinking about it more because I, I've restricted about it so much. And I can't get it off my mind. I really want that pizza. I can't believe I didn't have it. I feel so unsatisfied. That's not a bad, that's not a good way to go through that. Um, and so I want you to be making decisions you feel good about. And sometimes, sometimes that's having a couple slices of pizza, not worrying about the fact that there's no protein or plant on the plate. And sometimes it's, have a slice of pizza, but get your grilled chicken salad on the side. And sometimes have no pizza, get your grilled chicken on. Like it, it, there is no inherent right way to go about this. There is only what's important to you in the moment. And that will change, will absolutely change. So yeah, sorry for that, that non-direct answer. It was a really tough one. If feeling under-recovered, better to skip the session, do it the next day, or just do what you can. It, it depends. Um, it depends. What I want you to know is that the, whichever one of these that you do, in one, two, three, five, ten years from now, it'll make no difference. So you can trust your gut in this moment. Me personally, if I'm if I didn't sleep well the night before, um, I might go in with the mentality of doing one hard set of that workout, um, and say, okay, instead of my three sets of RDLs, I'm going to do one set of RDL, and then I'm going to do one set of my split squats, one set of my leg extension. I'm going to make it as hard as I can do today, but I'm going to that's going to be my not rounding down to zero sort of approach. Um, but if you did skip that workout, I promise you, two weeks from now, four weeks from now, six weeks from now, one year from now, two years from now, five years from now, it makes no difference. And so most of this is, yeah, we can talk about kind of the circumstances in which you might want to go with one strategy over another, but man, it doesn't matter a lot. It really doesn't. And so I don't I don't want this to carry a high emotional weight. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that if I were to try and, consider all the contexts, um, I would want someone to either skip the session or do one hard set. Those would be the things I would want them to do. But but let's be real. There are going to be, if this hybrid training that I've been doing, training for the half marathon and training for hypertrophy has taught me anything, it's that you're not always going to feel great all the time. And sometimes just getting started is enough to, to you know, whether it's adrenaline fueled, uh, get you through the workout. Um and so I've actually found out that, yeah, you're not always going to feel really great every day, but if you get started, sometimes it ends up working out okay. Um, yeah, but in the same breath, I think there's an element of give yourself grace and don't fucking force yourself through it if you're feeling like dog shit. It's just one workout. Let's keep it all in context, like one fucking workout. You're probably working out 200 times a year or something. Like, you're good. Okay, last question we got to do. Um, how to ask for support and understanding from family and friends when lifting and dieting. Oof. Oh, this one's so tough and I'm sorry for the eye roll kind of gasp if you're not watching on YouTube that I just had. Um, I think open and honest communication is is absolutely a must. There is no time for subtleties with your close relationships, with your spouse, with your family and friends. There's no time for like anything other than being direct and open and honest. And if you don't, aren't getting the support that you need from the people in your house and people are being dementors and saboteurs and, and just messing with your flow and making you feel weird and not supporting you, like... Yeah, on some level, fuck those people and get them out of your life. Um, not always super easy, but in other ways, it's about being open and honest and and not letting months of this go by before saying something, you know? Um, most people will respond to open and honesty with compassion. And so, yeah, we're not talking about saying, hey, dude, shut the F up, um, you know, I, 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 that's pissing me off or, yeah, okay, maybe. But, you know, sitting down with a family member and being like, hey, like, hey, um, I'm working on my health right now and it's important to me. And, and 
sometimes those comments can be a little bit, they put me in a weird headspace where, um, you know, it, it makes me feel, uh, you know, worse about myself or what I'm doing and it, it doesn't have a good response. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't do that. You know, I think if you, so, so my first, the first thought that comes into my head is like, fuck those people, you don't need them in your life. But that, that's not fair to assume you can do that in every circumstance. But if you do what I just said, which is like open, honest communication with compassion about what about you, what your needs are and how that person is making you feel, and they can't respect that and they can't even really internalize and understand what you're saying and, and, and modify their actions, um, yeah, that to me is not a person I would want in my life, kind of period, full stop. Now, there's an element of that while I was saying that. I was like, yeah, but like, should you let other people's opinions and feelings get in the way of what you want? Yeah, in a perfect world, I think there's some element of like, yeah, like F you, man, like uh, I'm, I'm gonna do me and I'm not gonna let your thoughts and, and sayings and actions affect what I want. Now, I like that bit of... Um, I like that bit of like ruggedness of like, I'm not gonna let anybody stand in the way of what I want, but I will meet halfway and admit that it is tougher when you don't have that support system in and around you, in your inner circle. And I think that there's two sides to that coin. One is is doubling down on, hey, this is my life. I get one, I wanna do this and I'm not gonna let somebody else stand in my way. I love that. There's also an element of, of, trying to help create an environment where less of that is needed, right? Like uh, there's nothing wrong with having that mentality, but also saying, you know, if people were less dementory, less of dementors, uh, I wouldn't have to use so much of that mentality. It would be easier. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that as well. All right, cool. All right, guys, thank you for asking the question. I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.